This is a Romy cast. Welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. This is the award-winning podcast, The Walrus Was Paul. This podcast was voted winner, outstanding music series at the 2022 Canadian Podcast Awards. I've been doing this podcast now since July of 2020 and have released over 50 episodes and spoken with some of the finest in the Canadian music world about some of the greatest music ever recorded by the Beatles as a group and as solo artists. So there are a bunch of episodes now over three years old and they are buried back in the archive and out of view. So what I've decided to do is to re-release some of those old episodes in the hope that they will be discovered by new listeners who didn't catch them the first time around. You could be one of those listeners. Maybe you've been a listener for a year or two, but you haven't gone all the way back in the archive. Uh, I still have many new episodes that will be coming out, but I'm going to re-release some of the really old ones as well. There are some cracking episodes from the very early days of this little project. I'm going to re-release one of those today. Actually, this is part two, so if you missed part one, go back and find it, listen to that first, and then come back and listen to part two. But in any event, this week marks 58 years since the release of the Beatles' classic Rubber Soul album. I love this album. I love all the Beatles albums, and I know you probably do as well if you're listening to this podcast, but that year, 1965, was a real transition year for the Beatles. They released two albums that year. It was the last year during which they released two studio albums. They released Help earlier in the year, the soundtrack to the movie, and then for the Christmas market, later in the year, they released Rubber Soul, the album we're going to be talking about again today with Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo. But think about it, right? Just before Help, they did Beatles for Sale. Some cool tracks on there. It's an underrated album. I like it, and we've talked about it in a couple of episodes. Right after Rubber Soul, they did Revolver. So, big transition going Help, Rubber Soul, and all of a sudden, it's Revolver. And then it's Pepper. And then on we go. So a real transition year. And I think out of the two, Help and Rubber Soul, that were released in 1965, I think Rubber Soul is maybe just 
it, it just pushed it a little bit further than Help did. A real studio album. The sitar was introduced on Norwegian Wood more production. This was the first album on which they were able to utilize four-track recording. So lots going on that we talk about in this episode. So I'm re-releasing a couple of episodes. This, again, is part two of the re-release. Part one came out a few days ago as I'm recording this. And I talked back in 2020 with Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo. Jim Cuddy is one of Canada's finest singers and songwriters with writing partner Greg Keeler. Uh, he penned some classic tunes known by music fans around the world, not just in Canada. Try, After the Rain, Till I'm Myself Again. Blue Rodeo have sold over 5 million albums and Jim has also released a bunch of solo records. Find out all you want to know about Jim at jimcuddy.com. His Blue Rodeo bandmate and pal, Colin Cripps, the outstanding guitar player, has produced and played with and written with, to name a few, Colin James, Kathleen Edwards, Brian Adams, Big Wreck, Sarah McLaughlin, and so on. He's been the lead guitar player in Blue Rodeo for the last decade, and he's also released some solo work as well. You can check out his website, colincrips.com, for info on what Colin has done and is up to. And both gentlemen also on the socials, Instagram, as well as Twitter or X. The website for this podcast is romycast.com, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. And if you head there, you can find many of the episodes that we have done so far. This, again, is a special episode. It's a re-release of a vintage archive episode from the series that was recorded in 2020. So we're going to dig into part two of this vintage episode. It was originally recorded in the summer of 2020. And in fact, it was the first episode of of the walrus was Paul. Just to refresh your memory, we were in lockdown in Canada and around the world. There were no COVID vaccines yet. In-person interviews, in-person anything was not happening. So apologies for some of the dropouts in the audio at times, but this was recorded over Zoom. And Zoom in 2020, again, was in its relatively early stages. The quality wasn't as good as it is now. In the last episode, we talked about side one of Rubber Soul. So here is the conversation about side two. And we'll pick up this episode with us talking about the first cut on side two, what goes on. A song that to me sounds, it's called What Goes On, the only Lennon-McCartney-Starkey song in the Beatles catalog. Ringo got a writing credit on it. No formal middle eight, just kind of one chorus, one verse extended. Uh, But to me, Colin, it sounds, if Carl Perkins didn't walk into the studio and play guitar on this track, (laughs) then, then George, you can hear the influence of George Harrison, can you not? It's a, to me, it's a total throwback song. You know, it's one of the one. It's one of the song, one of the probably the only songs on the record that that has that definitely has that homage to the earlier time. You know that 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 and Ringo's sensibility. I guess the way that maybe he felt himself in the band was his character as a singer and his character as a as a persona. You know, with a bit more of that. You know, that earlier rock and roll. You know, the country uh, meets early rock and roll style. 
And that's so that makes the, it made the song fitting, right? Also, it's also it's like one thing to have a song that you either are given to sing, which obviously happened with him, or that you're involved in, but it has to be the right fit, you know. So they always seem like the songs Ringo did, you know, they they just seem like the right fit, you know. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, no, they left this one off of the North American release. Uh, Jim, uh, are, are you shaking your head or nodding your head? Good call or bad? Call? Well, I was, I was doing no. Well, you know, I mean, it, it's replaced by "It's Only Love" on the on "It's Only Love" and that is all. That's, oh. that's a better song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Then what goes on? I mean, I'm sorry for Ringo, and I know that Ringo had to get his due, but "It's Only Love" is a is a great song. So, I mean, I know they used all these anyway, but, but again, I don't, I don't think that was a good choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your, uh, your, your views on, on the lineups of the two albums. I've, uh, I've never put out there before. It's, it's an interesting take you have. So you take, you take the North American album as you think it was better sequenced. Oh, I think it was much better sequenced. Yeah, I think that, I think even those two things, you know, uh, starting off with I've Just Seen a Face. Uh, I mean, that it's just, it's a brilliant start. I'm not sure, you know what, it, it seems to me the way that the British um, record is sequenced is just get all these songs on there and, you know, make sure, I mean, it's funny that Michelle's seventh, but, but it just seems like they just banged them on. Like, drive my car to Norwegian Wood Colin, would you have done that? Bad sequence. Bad sequence. It's it's weird. It doesn't. Yeah. It one doesn't yeah. set up the other. Um, I've just seen a face to Norwegian Wood. Just a smooth transition, you know. Yeah. So I yeah. agree. And yeah. I would have left. Uh, I would have left what goes on off the record too, if given the choice to put together, <laughs> you know, a sequence as we're going. With, uh, yeah. So B B side or maybe uh, rarities collection. <laughs> Could be. You know, I think what was funny is that was our first, most of my generation, it was our first um, uh, hearing of that Carl Perkins guitar, that kind of picking country guitar, unless we came from families, you know, like Basil Donovan that only listened to country music. And now maybe this is sacrilege, but George does it just well enough. You know, he's not good at it. He does it just good enough, and I bet you, I bet you that wasn't <laughs> one take. I bet you because you can hear some of them. You think, I don't know if they'd had another go at that, that might have been better. But it still isn't. I mean, well, I didn't know any better. I just thought this is cool guitar. I don't know what this is, but it sounds so cool. And and then of course I, I would hear the radio. I'd hear Johnny Cash. That's where it's from, or or they're they're ripping off the Beatles, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that right. guy's that guy's really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> to get off on a sideline, uh, can, can you yourself emulate that sort of Carl Perkins type? Like, what's the secret to getting that sound? Is it the guitar? Is it how it's processed? Is it a style? Is it yes, all of the all of the above? Yeah, it's all the above. It really is. Guitar, you know, there's a slapback echo sort of component to, to getting a certain of the classic rock and billy, rock and roll, late 50s, you know. And then there's the Chet Atkins, as you know, as he mentions that he was influenced by Chet Atkins. Well, you know, like Chet Atkins was, he was the gold standard of being able to do, um, you know, alternate style picking, playing. There was a group of guys in the 50s who were just incredible at that. And Chad Atkins was the probably the most popular guy. So, you know, George is extracting this version of it, which really served well. And it was, 
you know, it bridged him in this way of becoming that style of guitar player, but also I still hear all of his his pop sensibility in his playing, and that's what I love. So, you know, it did him it did him really well. But as Jim suggests, you know, it, he wasn't it wasn't masterful. You know? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you a, a Chet Atkins story. So, uh, mid career for Blue Rodeo, we're playing uh, Nashville now, which is uh, Ralph Emery's show in Nashville, and. Uh, so we go down and we're quite excited. And we also think this is a bit of a weird choice for us to be playing there, but fine. Showing our dressing room. I walk into the dressing room. There's an old guy in there, just, just like in his underwear, just putting on pants of, of his suit, of his cheap suit. And he looks up and I think, that's Chet Atkins. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, no, no, we're, we're sharing this dressing room. I said, you're, you're Chet Atkins. You, they make you share a dressing room? And he said, this is Nashville, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Chet a great <laughs> That is a great story. That's a great story. Uh, so we'll move on inside two. Uh, second track on the British version is Girl. another one of those songs that they recorded written and recorded on the last day of recording so they they had to get the album finished <clears throat> and uh, a bit of humor um the, the humor in this, the, the Beatles, there were lads from Liverpool at, at the end of the day. They were scousers. So you have in Penny Lane, you have fish and finger pie, which is a, you can figure it out. <laughs> in, in Day Tripper, uh, she, it sounds like she's a big teaser, but one of them is she's a prick teaser. So they, yeah. they snuck that in. And then in this one, the song called Girl, the backing vocals, they're not go. They're not going dit dit dit. They're going tit 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 tit. Uh, I just when I read that, I thought, oh, you, you sly boys, you sliding that past, past George Martin up there in his shirt and tie in the control room. <laughs> <laughs> I say, yeah. boys, was that tit you were saying? No, 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 George, it was dit. So, <laughs> but aside from that, Jim, uh, what is what does this song do or not do for you? It'd be interesting to see how many bands would admit that they've they've done the tit 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 thing too. Um, we certainly have. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful song. You know, it's a it's a it's a beautiful melody. It's beautiful backgrounds. Um, it's uh, it's just one of the pure pleasure tracks on this on this record. And yet, it's still, you know, she's the kind of girl is still pointing a finger, uh, and. That worked so well for Lennon, pointing out everybody else's flaws. <laughs> True enough. Yeah, no, he did. He uh, he he loved to uh, he loved to write those those songs. I mean, the great line, right? Uh, a man must break his back to earn his day of leisure. Like a, a very, as you say, Jim, very very <laughs> very pointing Spoken. the finger. Spoken from the back-breaking work of a rock star. Yeah. D uh, Colin, does it have a bit of a Beach Boys vibe to it at all with the vocals? Yeah, I would say because it's the the tonality of the voices is softer, you know, maybe. Um, I I don't hear it otherwise, to be honest, you know. I didn't know if you switched out the the tit tit tits for the la 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 that the Beach Boys <laughs> like to do, maybe. <laughs> maybe. 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 Yeah. There were a lot of bands doing like sort of those kind of percussive background 
parts, you know, there was, that was definitely out of the sort of Motown R and B. I think that's probably more where it came from. So then the, the next cut is I'm looking through you and I don't know, you might have it in your stash, Colin, but the, the early version of this, uh, the album version, the one that's on Rubber Soul, is a remake of a first attempt that mm-hmm. eventually saw the light of day. I think it was on one of their anthology albums. The first attempt was a G major key, and it was a little slower and tougher. Uh, and then the, the finished version, I believe, is in an A flat major, which isn't a key that gets used a lot, uh, I don't think. Uh, no. S- starts off in sort of a waltz time and then slips into 4-4. Four, four. I mean, I, I think it's a lovely song, but I'm listening to it as a fan. Uh, oh, I always loved that song. I, I, I am. If I heard the original version, I think the original version was done in '63, so it was an earlier, yeah, uh, template. But uh, I love the version that's on the on Rubber Soul. Uh, I've always, you know, I've always loved the arrangement and, um, and the sound of it. Uh, another interesting thing that I that I maybe keep thinking about with a lot of these songs as they come up is this record was also intentionally done where a lot of the vocals are really dry. Um, and it's surprising when you hear it because you don't think that's the case. Where the earlier records they would use, they only had really only effects they had on vocals were, were the uh, chamber reverb uh, at Abbey Road. And then they had sort of like early, you know, sort of tape delay style echo. And um, and Norm Smith, when he got to Rubber Soul, you know, he sort of, I guess, he, as part of everybody trying to change things up, he sort of decided that he wanted a lot of the songs to be as dry, drier vocals and more intimate. And that sort of goes with the, the, the you know, the acoustic sensibility of the songs. And when I think of, you know, I'm looking through you, I just think his voice is just so... It's just so present to me, and that's I think that's part of what I love about the recording. Jim, uh, thumbs up or down on this one? Oh, man, thumbs up. Thumbs up on this one. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things I was going to say is that the Beatles were so good at writing middle eights. So they get the first and the chorus and all the instrumentation. And then in the middle, there's assumedly eight bars of something that, you know, why, tell me, why did you not treat me right? They just never missed I mean, they, you know, everybody tries to do some form, uh, you know, to adapt their melody to some form to change it in the middle of a song. And the Beatles just could, um, they could do it so easily. And they, they, I mean, I know sometimes they did it by the two, two writers writing different things. But just in terms of taking your melody, doing it, doing a, a, an adaptation and then coming back to your melody, that's this is a beautiful example of it. And it's got yeah. that, it's got the great uh, um, guitar figure at the beginning that everybody learns to play. And uh, yeah, it's a absolute stellar song. If you get the chance, pull out the version on the anthology because uh, it's, it's, I love it, um, but it's, it's different, but it starts off with sort of a, 
and they do the hand clap, and then the guitar sort of comes in, boom, 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 oh, yeah. boom, and it, uh, and it's, uh, it, yeah, it, it's very different, but different key and, and slower, uh, and maybe a little more plodding. But it was interesting just how they went from that and then ended up with this. Uh, if, if you want to do a little Beatles nerdy thing. Uh, it's it's worth giving a listen. But you have changed. I'm looking through you. You're not the same. Uh, and then this goes into cut eleven uh, in my life. And John Lennon later said this was my first real major piece of work that was about my own life. This is a, a, a piece of brilliance. This is an absolutely beautiful song. It's uh, um, sincere and it's uh, got a beautiful melody, beautifully put together, beautifully recorded. John Lennon being sincere, not, not sneering, not pointing the finger. And it was, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, it endures as one of the great, maybe the top, one of the top 10 Beatles songs of all time. Yeah, it, it, it does everything that you want a great song to do. And it's and it has a timeless quality, obviously. It's been interpreted countless numbers of times by artists since it was written. And uh, that's also to me a testament of the of the greatness of a song is that how it can it's adaptable by many different uh, genres or styles or cultures and you know, that song certainly does that. So let, let's just do one little one little criticism of it. Remember, this was written by a 25-year-old man. And he's it's like he's looking back and saying, all these things I've forgotten in the last four years, in the last two years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what exactly are you talking about? So there is a there is a slight absurdity to the to the age of the composer, but barring that, it's a beautiful song. No, that's very true. I, I mean, but then you think about composers, you know, through the ages and, and, and their work belies their age, you know, or their wisdom, so to speak. Sure. Sure. Oh. No, I, I get it. I, I'm, I understand. Well, how yeah. did that, how the hell did they know what that is, you know, feels like at, you know, 17, right? Yeah. So, but uh, it happens, right? Yeah. Uh, there's so many, I mean, uh, Eleanor Rigby, what if... What an incredible song about society in Britain. There, there's not a, there's, I, I was lucky enough to live there for almost 10 years and the line resonates with me, the line wearing her face that she keeps in the jar by the door. Uh, mm. And that is so English. The stiff upper lip, you never show a weakness. You never display your emotions. You put the face on that you keep in the jar by the door. And I look at that and Jim, to your point, I go, how the hell could he have that observation as a young guy in his in his 20s? It just seems so so poignant. And maybe that's yeah. part of his brilliance as a composer. I don't know. Sure. But, um, but okay, a couple little nerdy things quickly for that song, if you want. Now, obviously, the, the, the piano motif in the middle of the song is um, is what they call a half speed uh, is done at half speed, where they originally there was a guitar solo in that in that solo section. They opted to not use it to the guitar solo, and they re recorded. And George Martin does the you know the it sounds like a harpsichord, but it's actually a piano, but it's recorded at half speed um, because they wanted it to sound a certain way. 
as much as they wanted to use that part, they wanted the sound to be, they wanted it to sound more shortened and, and decayed in terms of the piano sound. So that, that technique, George Martin figured out uh, as a production thing to, to do that um, where you would literally run the tape. They ran their tape speeds at 15 IPS. So they, when it came to that section, they slowed the tape down to half played it as a, uh, at an octave lower, played it as a sort of slower octave lower, and then put the tape back. Because you could never really play that. I mean, I'm, some, I'm sure that some piano players could play it, but it's not, you know, it's not a physically easy thing to do. That is a first all-star team nerd fact. Like that's good, that is quality <laughs> stuff. That is really good. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that is great stuff. <laughs> so then out of that, you go into uh, Wait, which had been kicking around for quite a while. Uh, originally written for the Help album uh, back in June. And then they came back to it again on that last that last day. And, and uh, it's uh, instrumentally... What to, George Harrison's pedal tone guitar maybe is is the thing that makes it stand out. Uh, yeah. Jim, isn't it? Am I wrong? Is it, it is it sung by the two of them? John does John does part and and, and Paul does the other part. Wait. They haven't done that in a long time either. But yeah, you can just hear the beginning. Uh, well, I guess he did a lot on help, but you can hear the the. Uh, the swell guitar um, yeah. in the end. Bum, 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 yeah, yeah. That's a good one. You know, not not a first all-star team, but but it's a good one. And it's, yeah. a, it's a great uh, it's a great vocal performance from both of them. It's really, really high and 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 assertive and really great. Well, and then the next cut is um if I Needed Someone, which was the first Harrison track recorded for Rubber Soul, finished up on uh, the same day. They finished it up the same day that they started In My Life, just to, for some context as to what they were doing that day. I absolutely love the 12-string Rickenbacker, and this is such a showcase for it. Uh, I mean, uh, Jim, you're smiling and nodding your head. You too, Colin. I mean, it's. it's I, I just, I love the sound of the instrument, and it just, it has that bird's sound to it so much. Well, yeah, for sure. It, I mean, it, you know, it's always interesting to, to wonder where the influence of that came from. You know, uh, George had the Ricky 12 first, you know. Um, I won't get super nerdy about Ricky 12 strings, but I can tell you that his is number two. It's not number one, but his is the second one made. And um, but by the time, you know, that song came around, obviously the birds were already kind of coming into full force with everything. So the Ricky 12 string sound was very popular. Uh, and that song, you know, the thing that also makes that song really ringy and, and bright is, you know, the capos, it's capoed at capo five. So it's not only high, you know, as a Ricky Rickenbacker 12 string sound, it's all, it's high in terms of its pitch, you know, like he's playing up pretty high to get that motif. Right, it, it capoed um, at the fifth fret. So um, I've always loved the song because if you play a Ricky, 
And, you know, there's certain sort of go-to songs that Jim and I both, you know, we're both like, oh yeah, well, you got to learn how to play this song on a Ricky because it just, it almost gets you into the, into the, you know, into the club, right? So they're not easy to play, uh, you know, in some respects. So he says, uh, uh, Roger McGinn says, uh, and George Harrison didn't hide this. It was based on the bird song, The Bells of Rimney. Oh, okay. Uh, based on that, uh, and yeah. and the drumming from "She Don't Care About Time," so it was very, very homage to the birds. Now, speaking of twelve-string Rickies, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure you will. That is a twelve-string Ricky on uh, "Till I Am Myself Again," is it not? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. It's yeah. actually Colin's twelve-string Ricky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he wasn't in the band at the time, but he, you were in LA, right? Yeah, no, I, I somehow, yeah, I was in L.A., yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So we, we used his. I loaned it to them, to, I loaned it to, uh, yeah. to, uh, to Greg, you know, because I had, you've been using it in our, you know, Greg and I played together in Crash Vegas, which, um, and I was playing the Ricky right out of the gate in that band, so I think that, that you know, that influenced and I'm sure you had a Ricky once, but you had a six string, right, Jim? I had a six string, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's one of those guitars I never should have let slip away. But yeah. well, let's, uh, let's just talk about, you know, there was something, I loved George as a kid. I thought he was a cool Beatle, and I loved the fact that he was kind of second string, and, and I just loved it. But there was always something about his songs that was a little off-putting, and often it was the lyrical content. And this one is a perfect example. You know, it, the Beatles, especially John Lennon, were coming there next. They could exhibit some really full-blown sexism in their songs. And this one, you know, apparently was written to his girlfriend who became his wife, right? Patty Boyd. Oh. Yeah, Patty Boyd. And, and uh, you know, it's like, carve your number on, uh, carve my number on your wall. Maybe you'll get a call from me. And if I needed somebody, you'd be the one I, I, I would choose. And you should be thrilled that I'm <laughs> telling you this. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, even... Even as a kid, it was I didn't understand why it was off-putting, but it was off-putting, and uh, and you know which is funny considering I never even thought twice about the lyrics of the next song. Oh yeah, the most hideous lyrics of all time. Just to stay with this for a second though, it's a lot of George's songs with the Beatles have that kind of like grumpy old man quality, right? Like uh, don't bother me. Yeah, piggies. Uh, tax man, he's whinging about the tax that he. I mean, we could all we could all write that song, of course. But yeah, he's, yeah. but but he yeah he had that really whingy quality, and it's it's funny because from afar you want to go, you're in the Beatles. How bad right. can things be? <laughs> right. But and and he certainly ended up being you know by by any account that you read or see, he ended up being a very peaceful, loving man. He was good to his friends, and but there was there's always there's there's often a little cringeworthy element to the lyrics of his songs. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this one, this one's right yeah. up there for me. I like the song, but I don't like the lyrics. Yeah. Guys, I have two nerdy guitar questions for you when I have you here. Uh, so first of all, uh, Colin could probably answer this one. How the hell do you keep a 12 string Ricky in tune and, and sounding the way it sounds when you play it? What's the secret? You have to be patient with the tuning and you'd have to know how to tune one. And you just learn those two things. You know, 
Uh, there's no real secret to it. It's just patience and uh, and and um, learning the tricks. Somebody will teach you the tricks. You know, I was taught the tricks. I've passed them along since then. But uh, we know, well, Colin. There's also there's also this sense that you get a good one or you don't get a good one of the twelve strings, right? Yes, absolutely. And there's also like any guitar. You know, sometimes you get really great ones. And uh, I was very lucky that the one I have. I've had since 86 and, you know, it's a 67. Um, I call it the summer of love, Ricky, because it's made in June 67. Um, but I got a really great one right, um, you know, early on. So that really does help for sure. I thought I read that you have a vintage Gretsch on Permalone from Colin. <laughs> what? No, I have a Gretsch acoustic guitar. It, that it's... Is, I have, but you know what? I try not to mention it because I've had it now for about 14 years and no, I just keep, I just keep it, hiding it in my house. So when he comes over and just a little scan, he's not going to see it. Sorry. No, I think, sorry. Uh, he's forgotten that one day I actually just said, you know, you've had that guitar longer than I ever had it. So you <laughs> <did>. <laughs> yeah, it's a beauty. Yeah. It's a beauty. It's Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so then the last song on the British release of the album, uh, Cut 14, Run For Your Life. And the line in question is, I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man, which was taken from an early Elvis Presley song, Baby, Let's Play House. Uh, and to be fair, uh, Jim, John Lennon later said in... 1973 said this is his least favorite Beatles song and the song he most regretted writing. Did it creep you out even when you heard it as a kid? No, no. When I heard it as a kid, it was, it was no different. It, it just seemed like a blues song. I mean, you know, when you were listening to those things, Hey Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? All this kind of stuff. It didn't, it didn't occur to me at all. It didn't occur to me at all until I was in my twenties and then, and then listening to it. And, and, you know, John had repudiated his writing it, but he didn't just write that. He didn't just take that line about rather see you dead than, you know, he said, baby, I'm determined that I, you know, he, every verse has something absolutely sickening in it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's amazing that it exists in the Beatle canon. It really is. It's an absolutely disgraceful lyric. And I, you know, I, I don't blame John, although by all accounts, he was a pretty violent young guy. Um, yeah. And that, that this seemed that this seemed OK in in the, the imaginary world of songs, that it, it came from this blues tradition of, you know, who even wants to say it. But I, I get where it came from. Um, <laughs> but there it is. You know, <laughs> you, you know there's a lot of. Uh, I mean, he did it. He sang it. And it's too bad because it is a great song. Without those lyrics, it's a great song. It's got really good guitar parts. It's got really good vocals. But, whew. Apparently, he never did it. He never performed it beyond the recording, right? Yeah. That's yeah. it. Only time he ever did it. So Right. I mean, yeah. it's not like there was a whole bunch of other opportunities. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true know? enough. True enough, but they did still play after that, so he could have. Yeah, sort of. I mean, they did what thirteen dates, and then they did did eight dates in the in the summer, yeah. and then they're done. Yeah. So, not a lot of uh, not a lot of cover versions of this one. There's not a lot. There's not a lot. Of, 
Are there any? Did anybody cover it? I couldn't find one example. Okay, that's good. Big philosophical question, and uh, not pertaining particularly to this song, but songs don't always date well. Um, But most of the Beatles, I think, do date well. Is that is that a fair general statement? Absolutely. You know, I I think it does because they're so deeply embedded in my pleasure center. But I I don't think everybody feels like that. You know, I, I remember that the first, our first drummer, Cleve Anderson, he wasn't a big Beatle fan. For him, and he's just a little older than I am, a couple years older. For him, it was too childish. You know, all, all right from the beginning, it was too childish. And he, he, he tended to like a lot of darker things, more Hendrix and, and the Stones and, and then punk music. But, but, but I think that in terms of the brilliance of the songwriting, singing, arrangements and sounds, it would be very hard to argue that they don't still exist as standards. They are the Bobby Orr of, of music. They, they just are. And it's, it's pretty hard to argue. You might not like it, but in terms of what they accomplished in that short seven-year period, I don't know. It seems like that that's the tone. Jim, have you ever come close to meeting McCartney or have you met him? No, I have never come close to meeting McCartney. The, the closest I've come is, is Ron Sexsmith's story of being over there for lunch. And I, <laughs> you know what? I don't know what I, what I would say. I, I mean, you know, Ron had a chance to play a song for, for Paul McCartney and, and he played a silly little love song instead of playing one of his own. And I think, would I do that? Like, would I be so befuddled that I would? That oh, would... this is a great, this is a great thread of a conversation. Come on, what would you play? You're having tea with Paul McCartney at his house in St. John's Wood on Cavendish Avenue. And he said, come on, oh. come on, Jim, play me a song. Pick one of my guitars Oh my God! Well, his yeah, his guitars would be left-handed, so I couldn't. Play well, that's guitars. a good point. Good point. Um, but you know what? I think if I th- think about it rationally, I'd like to play him something like "Bad Timing" or or something that was just a song that I'd written. I guess just for for history, just to say I played one of my songs for Paul McCartney. I don't think I would play him one of his songs. As <laughs> if somebody came up to me and said. Oh, you know, I said play a song, and then they played one of my songs. I don't, I would endure it, but I wouldn't like enjoy it. Okay. I'll bet that's happened to you, though. Come on. <laughs> oh, sure, but you know, I think it's just one of those moments, and I and I love that Ron's moment is is very Ron Sexsmithish, and that's exactly. I'm sure he would still choose that again, but uh, but no, I don't know. What would you do, Colin? I would yeah. uh, would have played. Well, you know, I would play one of my own songs i guess that that would be that that seems to be the the premise that 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 the ask is about you know i think, like, yeah, I, think I think that's song. what you're being asked yeah. yeah yeah like play me something that you come up with right? yeah so guys final thoughts looking on this album uh where does it where does it rate in the the beatles canon uh where does it rate for you personally is it one that you pull out every once in a while and is it your go-to beatles album uh colin i'll let you start i would say my go-to beatles album uh, that's so hard because i i mean i love so many of them but i would you know my go-to would be abbey road uh but rubber soul would would certainly be um Number two, you know, when I go through different periods of their work, I'm reminded of certain 
parts of, you know, periods in my life, even though I did obviously come sort of at the end of the, you know, like I said, I got, I got Abbey Road in the, you know, that Christmas uh, that it came out. But, uh, but, um, you know, I would say that, you know, Abbey Road and, and, and then Rubber Soul and then Revolver for me would be my, uh, those would be my three for the top three anyway. You know what? I, I think I'm like a lot of Beatles fans. I'll say, well, Rubber Soul is my favorite record, but well, maybe Abbey Road's my favorite record. But then, you know, I really used to like <laughs> Beatles 65. I love Beatles 65. And I really remember playing, liking, uh, you know, such and such. I, I, I'm not sure that they all represent such different phases of my childhood and they all have greatness. And sometimes I like to just listen to the deterioration ones, you know, I, I like, and, and I'd say my favorite song, my favorite Beatles song is, is Long and Winding Road. And, yeah. and I, I probably like it from the Naked record. So I think that the whole, the whole thing, uh, it would be hard for me to pick a record because it would be, they're all very different. They're not, although Re- Revolver and Rubber Soul can be compared, they're very different records and they represent different, a different phase of the Beatles. So, I, I wouldn't be able to pick a pick a favorite record, although it's been very fun dissecting this record. Yeah, guys, yes. I, I cannot thank you enough for the generosity of your time, and uh, it has been a complete pleasure sitting and talking about the Beatles with a couple of guys who a know it backwards, forwards, and sideways, but b. <laughs> Of pretty iconic Canadian musicians, uh, so I I don't take that uh, for granted. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Paul. It's great. I'm glad you're doing this. This is wonderful. Fantastic. So that was a lot of fun looking back. And again, that episode, the last two episodes, the vintage episodes that I've released recorded back in the summer of 2020. If you've enjoyed this look back or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Any amount helps if you can afford it please fire me a couple of bucks. Uh, You can offer your support by visiting the website and clicking on the support the walrus button. I use the money to offset the costs of hosting this podcast, hosting, having a web host, I don't mean me, uh, but a web host, as well as some expenses on promotion and production. If you're a fan of Blue Rodeo and Jim and Colin, you might want to check out Series 2, Episodes 11 and 12 when our dynamic duo dug into Abbey Road. Good episodes as well. You can follow the podcast on the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanock Paul. And on Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email me directly at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the dot romicast at gmail.com always appreciate positive reviews and shares on your social channels as well that is it for now thanks for listening i'm paul romanuk and i will talk to you next time one two three four do you ever get tired of being beatles 